Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a warning from the former head of Homeland Security for Washington, D.C., who is concerned, quote, We're so busy looking in the rearview mirror of what happened last year, we're not looking at the threat in front of us, and the analysis suggests that the battle's going to be back at the States. Joining us is Michael Greenberger, a former Deputy Principal Associate Attorney General in the U.S. Justice Department, where he supervised work on security matters and is now the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law at the University of Maryland School of Law. We'll get an appraisal of the homeland security landscape as we enter a turbulent election year in which many predict and expect violence, with frontline responders and law enforcement resources already stretched thin from the ravages of the COVID pandemic, state and local authorities are hardly prepared for a series of January the 6th type insurrections from pro-Trump militias or angry Democrats whose votes were stolen in a rigged election. Then, following a warning from former President Jimmy Carter that the United States is, quote, at genuine risk of civil conflict as our great nation now teeters on the brink of a widening abyss. Joining us is Barbara Walter, an expert on civil wars who has spent her career studying civil conflict in places like Sri Lanka and Iraq. She is a professor of political science and raw chair of Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, and her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances, and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she served on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning political blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of the new book out this week, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. A common theme she has discovered from those living in countries that descended into civil war is that no one saw it coming, and the same applies here, where we take our democracy for granted as it backslides into anonocracy. We discuss the clear and present danger that Trump's GOP is leading us into an authoritarian one-party state led by a mentally ill dictator-worshipping kleptocrat she describes as an ethnic entrepreneur who is exploiting and widening the gap in the divided states of America. And before we begin today's program, I'd like to thank a growing number of listeners who have become subscribers to Background Briefing, making monthly donations to our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Michael Greenberg, who is formerly the Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work In security matters, he also is the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law at the University of Maryland School of Law. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Greenberger. Thank you, Ian. So, Michael, I wanted to get a sense of the landscape in terms of homeland security 
as we head into this, uh, or begin this, uh, what's going to be a very turbulent political year, one in which a number of scholars are predicting some form of civil strife or even civil war. I noticed that the former head of Homeland Security for Washington, D.C., a couple of days ago said that we are busy looking into the rearview mirror and that we're not looking at the threats that's right in front of us. How, how do you see the situation going forward? Well, first of all, I'd say that there's an element of truth in that assessment, but it's not not completely derived from negligence on the part of people who have these responsibilities. Uh, it's often forgotten that the people who worry about uh, civil unrest, for example, which is what we what I think you are focusing on, are also worried about uh, responding to uh, climate crises, wildfires. Uh, uh, in California, for example, or in the East Coast, uh, snowstorms. Uh, we had uh, one of the major 95, uh, the major highway going from uh, Massachusetts to Florida, uh, was completely blocked during a snowstorm, uh, and people were on, on the road without food for 30-some hours. Uh, the people who worry about things like that are the people who are going to worry about civil unrest. And then not to mention COVID, I'm sure all over the East Coast, I'm sure it's true on the West Coast too, governors are declaring emergencies to be able, for example, to use the National Guard to supplement nursing capability in hospitals that are completely overrun by COVID. I know in Maryland, it's where I have responsibility, it's uh, the hospitals are just completely overrun. The uh, medical personnel are if they don't have COVID themselves, are exhausted. The governor of Maryland declared an emergency, which allows him to alter licensing requirements. And so they're taking nursing students uh, and training the nursing students to go into the hospitals to supplement uh, the nursing staff. So with things like that happening all over the place, the focus on civil unrest or the worry about civil unrest, there's a tremendous distraction from it. The other thing I would say is a bit of good news, not completely good news, but I think that there are lessons learned from the January 6th event. Uh, on the one hand, I think the perpetrators thought that they were under the direction of the president and there were, therefore were immune from any responsibility from law enforcement and uh, while there is criticism that not enough has been done there, uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland has has uh, been under criticism. There have been over 700 people uh, in various stages through the criminal process, and it is a shock to the system to these people that there is there is criminal responsibility for this. And there's no defense that they were under orders from the pre then president of the United States. And the second thing is, I think, for example, the Capitol Police, the man who is now heading at Tom Manger is brought out of retirement. He was uh, the police chief in one of the major jurisdictions in northern Virginia and then in Montgomery County, which is one of the big jurisdictions outside of Washington. Uh, he's, uh, I know him personally. He's absolutely first rate. 
he he testified on January 6th about what's being done with the Capitol Police. They're very shorthanded. He, I, I think he promised he would hire 680 new police personnel. But he is a tremendously responsible guy. The people who are there are being trained. Uh, and I don't think it is as likely that they would be caught off guard, for example, as they clearly were on January 6th. And finally, you will have noticed that uh, because the capital is in the District of Columbia and the District of Columbia is not a state, the mayor of the District of Columbia could not call out the D.C. National Guard to come to the rescue of the uh, personnel in the Capitol building. They needed the uh, Department of Defense to approve that. Now, in California or in Maryland, the governor can bring the National Guard out without, uh, unless it's federalized, it's run by the governors, it's a state-run operation, and Congress passed a law that says the mayor of D.C. can bring out the National Guard, so you won't have this three-hour wait for bringing uh, the cavalry in to uh, assist. So I think a lot of things have improved in terms of response, including that I think the message has gone out that it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card, and therefore some of the worries about this have disappeared. And if you, the final thing I would say is, to me, this is reminiscent of 1933 in Germany, uh, state by state that are controlled by Republican legislators, voting rights are being absolutely decimated. The number of places that one can vote in Democratic-held jurisdictions are being limited. You cannot use absentee ballots. You can't vote by mail. And that's what we're seeing, this fight on Capitol Hill of getting voting rights legislation that would preempt these these, uh, diminishments of, of the right to vote, especially in Democratic jurisdictions. And if that doesn't get corrected, the kinds of things that wanted to be accomplished through uh, taking the Capitol on January 6th may be accomplished, I use the word in quotations, peacefully by preventing people from voting in the midterms in the next presidential election. But to continue on from the the statements from the former head of Homeland Security in Washington, D.C., he said that, Instead of waiting for the very last moment to effect an election, the battle's going to be back at the states. Consider the fact that if the federal government wasn't prepared for what happened on January the 6th, what are the state and local authorities going to be prepared for? Well, my assessment, Ian, and I'm perfectly prepared to be corrected, is that the governors uh, in the states, and I would say especially the blue state governors, I put California in that on the East Coast, we have Republican governor in uh, Massachusetts, Republican governor in Maryland. They are beefing up uh, the, the, the National Guard, uh, traditional law enforcement to prevent the kinds of things that happened on January 6th. And I know the mayor of D.C. is now that she has authority over the National Guard and doesn't have to wait to get the uh, authority from the Defense Department, is doing the same. And I have a high degree of confidence that that, uh, you can say you're looking backwards, what have you, but that 
steps will be taken uh, in the state capitals, uh, in uh, large cities, uh, and in uh, Washington, D.C., the red flags, and there were red flags before January 6th, all the commemorative events on January 6th makes that crystal clear. The red flags were there. They were ignored. I don't think they'll be ignored this time. And uh, so I'm more optimistic that civil unrest uh, going in, uh, for example, to the midterms or even the presidential election will be quelled. Uh, Now, if uh, uh, the right to vote is interfered with, as uh, if the laws that are being passed in many of the red states come to fruition, the frustration over not being able to vote because there are not enough voting precincts, because there aren't absentee ballots, because there isn't voting by mail, and all the other things that were done in the 2000 election to make it easy to vote are taken away. The frustrations there could be overwhelming. But I do think people are not, uh, uh, governors, uh, our mayor in D.C., are not sitting around waiting. If there is any problem, it's being distracted by having to use every resource available to uh, handle uh, hospital populations uh, as a result of COVID. Crime is uh, going up in various jurisdictions. Uh, There's distraction over dealing with other emergencies and maybe taking the eye off civil unrest. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Greenberg, who was formerly the Principal Deputy Associate Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, where he supervised work in security matters. He's also the founder and director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law at the University of Maryland School of Law. So when you mentioned the idea that Democrats are going to be furious if they can't vote in 2022 and or if indeed the votes are overturned, which now a lot of Republican legislatures in various states are passing laws that allow them to count and certify the vote, and if they don't like it, they can change it. That kind of a response, whether in whatever degree of civil unrest that would involve, wouldn't that invite a right-wing backlash, because it seems like the right-wing militias are far more organized, and they're certainly heavily armed. And you just have to look at the example of the plot in Michigan to kidnap Governor Whitmer. You're, uh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, first of all, I, who, who can predict the future? But I don't see Democrats being lawlessly violent in responding to whatever problems arise, there will be demonstrations, there will be protests. But as was true of the protests around uh, the police problems in uh, 2020, uh, those protests were by and large, they were large, but they were peaceful. But the future in terms of whether or not people have the right to vote or whether democratic jurisdictions or poor jurisdictions are prevented from voting. I mean, that's something we haven't gone through. Uh, who can predict? Um, and by the way, all of this makes the federal voting legislation that much more important. And there's uh, hand-to-hand combat going down, going on 
in Capitol Hill right now to pass federal legislation that would preempt all these state laws that are trying to take the right to vote away. And that's uh, that's a very dicey situation right now. And not enough attention is being paid to that. Uh, of course, we're in a 50-50 uh, situation in the Senate. And you've got Joe Manchin, who is raising a lot of problems for the Democrats. He's a Democratic senator from West Virginia, and he's He's not been helpful in a lot of these reform efforts. That may be a kind description of his, uh, his activity, but that needs to be watched because if they can get that federal legislation through the Senate, it's already been through and it would go through again the House of Representatives, uh, uh, you could have federal legislation that would preempt these state laws that are trying to limit the right to vote. So there was an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of days ago by former President Jimmy Carter warning that the United States is at genuine risk of civil conflict. Our great nation now teeters on the brink of a widening abyss, he wrote. Without immediate action, we are at genuine risk of civil conflict and losing our precious democracy. Americans must set aside differences and work together before it is too late. What do you make of that? I think he's absolutely right, and it goes to my point that, uh, you know, as was true in uh, Germany in 1932 and 1933, uh, the right uh, to vote for for democratic jurisdictions may be legally taken away unless they get this federal legislation through. Uh, And that means democracy as we know it. I mean, we've seen, gosh, we go back to the election of 2000, uh, which uh, 550 votes made the difference, but you had the, uh, uh, all the irregularities in Florida that allowed Florida to go to uh, Bush rather than Gore. Uh, and uh, then again in 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 3 million, uh, but lost the election. And boy, was that ever consequential. Uh, Trump put three justices on the uh, Supreme Court, and these arguments that took place yesterday demonstrate the uh, overwhelming uh, doctrine of the conservative jurists on the court uh, on a six to three vote that puts, for example, the vaccine efforts that President Biden has and and Congress has enacted uh, to make sure people get vaccinated has put that in jeopardy. So, uh, yes, if the red states are able to limit the ability of Democratic jurisdictions to vote, and especially poor jurisdictions, or jurisdictions that have predominantly young voters, uh, what Jimmy Carter says about the future of democracy is absolutely right. And uh, uh, the the question is... is, uh, uh, if, if we are able to beat back these red state limitations on voting through federal legislation, will that cause uh, the kind of disruption that we saw on January 6th? Now, my own view is the dangers are greater in the state capitals right now than they are in Washington. I think Washington is pretty well uh, protected. Uh, uh, 
as I said, the head of the National Capital Police. You couldn't ask for a better leader for that. Uh, the, the mayor of D.C. now has control over the National Guard. <clears throat> but I worry about the state capitals. And if the it may be that these uh, the kinds of protesters we saw on January 6th, I use the word protesters uh, in a gentle fashion. It was much worse than protesting, as President Biden said. But they they will get what they want. And then the question is going to be, what will uh, Democrats do uh, when they're denied the right to vote, and how will they respond? Well, just in the last minute, I mean, you mentioned Weimar Germany and, and the takeover of the Nazis in the 1932-1933. Of course, a uh, big part of that was the burning of the Reichstag, which was probably done, I think fairly certainly done by Hitler himself as a, an excuse. The storming of the capital on January the 6th was almost a burning of the Reichstag, obviously without fire. And since uh, his defeat, former President Trump has gotten more and more radical and more and more encouraging violence. So is there any way that you can stop him? Because he, without him, I think a lot of the steam would go out of this movement. Well, I, I, on that point, I, I'm worried that, yes, I think Trump definitely is the instigator, principal instigator here. But it worries me very much that this is so deeply embedded in uh, anti-democratic and, and possibly heavily armed forces that uh, even without Trump, we could have uh, similar kinds of problems. But uh, be that as it may, yes, your analogy between the capital, it's not perfect, but there's a lot to be said there. And what happened in uh, Nazi Germany uh, are correct. Um, as I said, uh, I think, fortunately, we don't have a federal police force in that sense. We, have, we rely on uh, uh, local and state jurisdictions for law enforcement. And to the extent the National Guard plays a role, and by the way, that's a role that's largely ignored and very important. Anytime there is a major crisis within a state, the Nash, state National Guard is, the, is a principal responder. Now, bear in mind also that the state National Guard can be federalized, uh, and that's in the, in the vein of the things we're talking about, who's the president, that, that could have big consequences. But um, these are all very worrisome problems, and uh, to the extent that people who are support of following legal process are in charge, I think uh, we uh, have a right to be hopeful to me, the key thing is getting this voting rights legislation through and to preempt these anti-democratic uh, state laws, which pre prevent uh, poor people and young people from voting who would otherwise be voting for the Democratic Party. That's the real problem. And getting that federal legislation passed is critically important. Well, Michael Greenberger, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Greenberg, who's the former director of the Division of Trading and Markets at the Commodities Future Trading Commission. He's currently the director of the Center for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law at the University of Maryland School of Law. And I've been speaking with Michael Greenberger, who was formerly the principal deputy associate attorney general at the United States Department of Justice, where he also supervised work 
on security matters. He's the founder and director of the Centre for Health and Homeland Security at the University of Maryland, where he also teaches constitutional law at the University of Maryland School of Law. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into what former President Carter has warned that the United States is at genuine risk of civil conflict as our great nation now teeters on the brink of a widening abyss. We'll be speaking with an expert on civil wars. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Barbara Walter, who's a professor of political science and and raw chair of of Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances, and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. Life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she served on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of the new book out this week, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. Welcome to Background Briefing, Barbara Walter. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, a couple of days ago in the New York Times, uh, former President Jimmy Carter wrote an op-ed saying that there's a genuine risk of civil war and that our great nation now teeters on the brink of a widening abyss Without immediate action, we are at a genuine risk of civil conflict and losing our precious democracy. Americans must set aside differences and work together before it is too late. So there's a lot of, um, and your book is obviously moving <laughs> moving the, the ball down the field here in terms yeah. of a wake-up call. And as we enter this turbulent political year, there's a lot of talk of possible civil unrest and even civil war. So... I take it the idea of a civil war starting is somewhere between possible and inevitable? Yeah. So let me give you a, the background story here, uh, which will put it in context. I've been studying civil wars for the last 30 years, and I've been looking at all civil wars that have happened over the last 80 years in Africa, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, Europe, in places like Syria and Libya, Mozambique, Nicaragua. And one of the things that we've learned by studying all of these conflicts is that two factors in particular tend to emerge in the lead up to civil war, no matter where they break out. And those two factors are what experts call anocracy, and that's a fancy term for partial democracy. It's in countries that have governments that are neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. They're somewhere in the middle. And the second big factor is whether a country's population breaks down into identity politics in these countries. So whether political parties begin to emerge that are based not on ideology, but on ethnicity, race, or religion. And then starting in 2017, I began serving on this task force run by the US government. I I was on the task force from 2017 to 2021. 
And we, our job was to put together a predictive model um, to, to think about all the factors that could matter or that could put countries at risk of civil war and try to narrow it down so that the U.S. government could look around the world, figure out what countries might be on the road to becoming unstable and violent, and then they could put, it, put these countries on a watch list. So I'm, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. I'm on this task force. We're studying all these countries around the world. We, we never talk about the United States. We never look at the United States. And what I start to see is that these two factors are emerging here in my own country, and they're emerging at a, at a rapid rate. So when you think about anocracy, this partial democracy, the United States uh, government has been, our democracy has been declining for the last five years. It was downgraded for the first time um, in 2016. It was downgraded again in 2019. And then after January 6th of last year, for the very first time since 1800, it was considered an anocracy. So we now have one of these conditions. And then when I started thinking about the second condition, about this, this notion of identity politics, that also was increasingly emerging here in the United States. Back in 2008, whites in the United States were basically equally split between the Democratic and the Republican Party. White working class voters voted Democrat. That's, that was their sort of ideological home. And then something changed when President Obama came to power. These working class whites began to gravitate towards the Republican Party, which from an ideological standpoint didn't really make that much sense. Republicans didn't tend to pursue policies that were um, beneficial to the working class. Today, the Republican Party is 90% white. So as I'm sitting on this task force and we're studying all of these countries outside the United States, and we know what the warning signs are, I realized that the American public needed to have this information so that we could do something to, to prevent violence before it was too late. And one of the things that I find extraordinary about the change in this country, and, and that is the idea, and I feel in a way that what I'm trying to do with my radio program is to create a reality-based community in post-truth America, is the notion that there's no consensus about what is true and what is real. Yeah. So given that environment, is that where we're sort of trapped or we're floundering? Is, is, how much currency does that situation give to what your research is finding? Well, controlling the narrative is really powerful. And again, if you look at these other cases, if you look historically about the, the years leading up to civil war, one of the things that you see is that um, they tend to be organized by, by extremists, extreme individuals in society who, who are willing to use violence to obtain their goals. And these extremists have a challenge. Um, most average citizens don't want violence. They don't want war. Um, but these violence entrepreneurs, as, as they're called, um, these extremists, 
have to get the support of at least some average citizens if they're going to have any chance to succeed. So think about people like Milosevic in the former Yugoslavia. He was a former communist when Yugoslavia uh, became independent. Um, and suddenly he had to run um, for competitive elections. And he understood um, that if he didn't get um, if he didn't get the support of, of Serbs, he would have no chance of gaining power. And so he very quickly pivoted from being a communist to being an ethnic nationalist. And not just being an ethnic nationalist, but being an ethnic nationalist who could gain control of the state radio waves, gain control of, of state media, and, and began this unrelenting campaign of fear-mongering, um, desperately trying to convince Serbs that if they didn't band together, if they didn't support uh, a Serb politician like Milosevic, that the Croats were going to band together and they were going to um, turn on the Serbs and, and shut them out of political power and potentially do something far, far worse. So, so this propaganda machine, back this was pre-internet, um, Milosevic used radio waves and he used television. Um, today, it's so much easier for extremists to, to capture the narrative by spewing disinformation and misinformation 24 hours a day via social media. And it's actually, I think, accelerated both the, the decline of democracy and the rise of, of ethnic nationalism and, and ethnic extremism around the world. And again, I'm speaking with Barbara Walter, who's a professor of political science and raw chair of, in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel fighting groups, alliances and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she serves on the CIA advisory panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of the new book out this week, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. So another former communist who is spreading ethno-nationalism and is a, a kleptocrat, but he's also seems to be more focused on dividing America than taking care of Russia because he's stealing it blind. Yeah, I th think the role that he's playing here is not insignificant in exacerbating the divisions that already exist by turning Americans against each other. And we're literally a bunch of suckers for falling for it. And the gift that keeps on giving for Vladimir Putin is none other than Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, Donald Trump is, to me, is just a simple, a symptom of, of larger underlying conditions. And if Donald Trump hadn't emerged here in this country, then, then some, somebody like him would have emerged. Um, and, and I say that because you see Donald Trump-like individuals emerging in lots of countries uh, in the world. These are, you know, I call them ethnic entrepreneurs. These are wannabe autocrats who um, are interested in political power. Um, and who oftentimes are the underdog. They're not well known. They don't have a lot of political experience. 
um, but they do want political power. And all of them have figured out a similar playbook to get to power, and that is to play on um, ethnic identity, racial identity, fears, ethnic fears, um, to convince uh, groups of people that their um, that their that their families, their communities are under threat, and that they have to band together. And so the other examples would be Bolsonaro in in Brazil, Duterte in the Philippines, Modi in India. Um, uh, Erdogan in Egypt, Orban in Hungary. There really is this group of ethnic nationalists who are quite skilled um, in using in using social media. If you if you look at Bolsonaro's old tweets, he loved to to tweet these very incendiary, very provocative tweets in all caps. It's it, their similarities are really quite astounding. So, is there a genesis? to what's happened to America, and particularly in our politics, where it's clear that Donald Trump is now controls the Republican Party. And that's an extraordinary thing in itself, given his record and the fact that he was defeated. But again, there's this alternative reality that's being created. And extraordinarily, even though on January the 7th, he was condemned by none other than the Republican leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, and the Republican leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, he now has the entire Republican Party cowering before yeah. him. But it wasn't that long ago. For example, when 9-11 happened, I recall all of the top senators in a bipartisan fashion linking arms on the steps of the Capitol, singing God Bless America together. It wasn't that long ago that Republicans and Democratic lawmakers were friends and they went to barbecues and they were godfathers for each other's children. What's happened to our polity to allow this infection of division to flourish? Hmm. So... There's a subset of the white population that's digging their heels in about a major transformation that's happening here in the United States. And it's a major transformation that's going to happen in other countries as well. It's just that the US is going through it first. And that transformation is from a country that has for all of its history, been white majority, where the white population has um, dominated politics, has dominated uh, business, has dominated culturally, to a country that's going to be white minority around 2045. So the United States is going to, to go through this transformation first, but Canada is likely to be, uh, ha it's likely to happen in Canada uh, and New Zealand shortly thereafter. Um, in the UK, and then in the rest of white majority countries in Europe by about 2100. And what's happening is a subset of the white population sees this as an existential threat to them. And they see the United States as rightfully theirs. Uh, they see the United States as a white Christian country. And they simply are not going, they believe that it's their patriotic duty to prevent this from happening. And something happened in 2010 that I think accelerated their fear and their sense of threat. In 2010, um, the, it was the first census 
that showed that a majority of, of, of babies born in the United States were non-white. Prior to that, if you were a white supremacist in this country, or you were somebody who truly believed that the United States must remain majority white, you focused on immigration. Um, and you, you're, uh, you believe that if you could halt immigration, that you could um, also halt this demographic change. But of course, in 2010, it became obvious that you could halt all immigration to the United States. And this demo demographic transformation was still going to happen. And that's when you started to see the growth of far-right militias, where there was a sense that working within the system, um, working within our democracy was no longer going to get um, this group what they ultimately wanted, and that was continued dominance. And if you look historically again at other countries, we know who tends to start civil wars. It's not the poorest groups in society. It's not the immigrants. It's not the, the groups that are most heavily discriminated against. The groups that tend to start civil wars are the groups that had once been dominant but are in decline. Um, and of course, that is where um, it, it, whites in this country are. And, and if, you, if you truly don't want to give up power, um, then you're going to take any means necessary um, to maintain it. And we're continuing the conversation with Barbara Walter, Professor of Political Science and Raw Chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she served on the CIA Advisory Panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog, Political Violence at a Glance, and is the author of the new book out this week, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. So you write that the American Civil War, not the one over secession, but the one that is brewing now, it won't look like America in the 1860s, Russia in the 1920s, or Spain in the 1930s. It will begin with sporadic acts of violence and terror accelerated by social media, and it will sneak up on us and leave us wondering how we could have been so blind. And I take it from all your research on these civil wars in other countries around the world, that is a common thread that people say we never saw it coming. Yeah. I mean, in terms of great geopolitical events, we never saw the collapse of the Soviet Union coming, did we? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's lots of reasons for that. I, you know, I think one is is um, just practical. People's daily lives are busy. <laughs> you know, they're they're going to their jobs, they're taking their kids to school, they're picking up groceries. Um, they, um, you know, they're not. You know, most people are not. Um, uh, you know, politically. Um, attuned to what is the details of what are what's going on, and and so they're distracted. And and then I also think there's a psychological component. Nobody likes to believe that um, they and their country, uh, men and women, are capable of violence. Nobody wants to believe that a civil war. Um, is possible in their country. And so they ignore the early warning signs. They see them, they see acts of violence as isolated events, or they see 
individuals who perpetrate these attacks as as lone actors. They don't see the pattern and and the larger movement because oftentimes they don't want to see it. Um, and then there's a third element, which is the the those individuals who are organizing for violence um, don't want people to to see what's happening, and so they they want people to be distracted. Um, they want people to think that the threat is coming, um, you know, from be from in front of them rather than from behind them. Um, and, and and so that's what often happens, you know, when I talk to people who who lived through the siege of Sarajevo or, or they lived in, in Baghdad and in Kiev um, in, in the weeks and days leading up to the, the wars there, um, you know, they talk about, you know, very common things that they were doing. They were seeing friends, they were going to the zoo, um, you know, they were having, you know, baby showers. Um, and, and then suddenly they heard machine gun fire in, in the hills. And by that time it was, it was too late. So surely we have the ingredients, don't we, in terms of, I spoke the other day with Robert Pape at the University of Chicago who's done studies on who were the, the makeup of the people that stormed the Capitol a yeah. year ago. And that movement, of course, has metastasized from the far right fringes into the mainstream of the Republican Party with Stop the Steal being universally <coughs> accepted. And uh, his research indicates there are at least 21 million Americans who believe that violence will be necessary to restore Donald Trump to his yes. rightful place in the White House. If you add to that mix close to 400 million guns in the hands of civilians, I mean, that's, I don't know that any other country has that frightening and, and volatile ingredient. So January 6th was a gift to the American people. I know that sounds provocative, but, but I truly believe that's true. And it was a gift to the American people because prior to that, those of us like Bob Pape and myself who, who study insurgency and civil war and political violence, we have been watching this you know, this grow, this cancer grow. We've been watching the rise of militias. We've been watching the rise of, of domestic terror. We've been watching it all. And we have been trying to to sound the alarm. We've been trying to, to um, tell the American public about the warning signs, but people weren't receptive because it, it's just so hard to believe. And what January 6th did was it made it so public and so obvious that this country really does have a problem that the average American can no longer ignore or deny it. And, and I'm actually quite hopeful after January 6th that it was a wake-up call and that as a result, um, you have, you, you have pretty much everybody in this country talking about how we can shore up democracy, how we can reduce um, this sort of ethnic hatred, how we can undercut these militias. And I think that's a very good thing. So let's talk a little bit about that in terms of the second part of your book, uh, how civil wars start and how to stop them. So you're suggesting then that we can make our democracy work better by restricting the breakup of the of our society via social media and and we can crack down on these armed right-wing groups such as the proud boys and the three percenters 
etc. And of course, there's been criticism that the Attorney General Merrick Garland is not doing that. And in terms of the former social media, is that to say that people like Mark Zuckerberg and Rupert Murdoch have to be held to account? Well, I, I actually see they're both ethnic entrepreneurs. They're they're both playing on identity and helping to create identity politics here in this country as a means to their you know their own profit. But I also see them as different. Television here in the United States is regulated. Social media is not. And I actually think over the next next few years we're we're going to have the data to definitively show the really negative effects that not only unregulated social media, but in particular the recommendation engines that are driving the most incendiary type of information, um, we're going to see the negative effects that's having um, on a whole host of of societal outcomes. Um, We're going to see what effect that's having on the decline of democracy. We know that Putin interfered in the 2016 election and and tried to interfere in the 2020 election. Uh, You know, for people who love this country, if you think about our external enemies, it's really, really hard for Russia to do any harm to the United States um, militarily. We are so much more powerful in every way than Russia. But unregulated social media offers somebody like Putin a backdoor into undercutting our democracy, into sowing distrust amongst our citizens of the value of, of democracy. And he's doing this not only in the United States, but in every liberal democracy around the world. He's doing it in Sweden. He's doing it in Germany. And so he's very craftily figured out how he can do harm to democracies without ever, ever engaging with us militarily. And then if you think about societal divisions, you know, the fact that recommendation engines preference, you know, negative information over positive information, sort of fear and hate over calm, and, and feeds people increasingly extreme material based on their on their choices, you could see it pulling people apart. And then we also know that, that the easiest way to join a militia here in the United States is through a social media platform like Facebook. I went on Facebook a few months ago and just to you know, see what militias existed here in my own home state of California, and I immediately had a you know, a, a cornucopia of choices. And when I when I started to to look into some of them, Facebook gave me more recommendations. So it's 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 a platform that's making it easier for extremists to try to radicalize individuals, for our external enemies to try to divide our country, and and for individuals to find and join groups whose mission is really to go after our democracy and go after our government. Well, it's no easy task, uh, surely, uh, Barbara Walter, to bring about systemic reform to our democracy mm-hmm. and to improve counterterrorism because everything is so politicized. And, of course, not to mention the fact that we're awash with guns in this country in the hands of civilians and in the hands of these militias. And we've had examples of the right-wing militias trying to kidnap Gretchen Whitman, the governor of Michigan. So given that, 
how do you deal with some of the systemic problems, which is if, if you've got a party that's becoming more and more radicalized, it's now controlled by Donald Trump. By the year 2040, the Republicans, they'll have 68% of the seats in the Senate representing 40% of the country. Yes. So Republican elites have no incentive to reform. In fact, they have every incentive to try to weaken our democracy even further so that they can cement in minority rule. Um, So as you said, it's going to be very, very hard um, to create systemic reform of our democracy um, from above. But I do truly believe in the power of individual citizens. And we know from lots of studies in political science that protest does work. Um, we know that turnout um, does does work. And that's what I would encourage the American public to do. Let me take those each, each in turn. The 2020 elections were devastating to Republicans. They had the highest turnout that they have had in generations, and they still lost by almost 8 million votes. So it became just crystal clear to them that they don't have the votes to win democratic elections if they are truly one person, one vote elections. But what we also know about the 2020 elections was that 80 million eligible voters did not vote. And that's an enormous number. And we know that a majority of those voters were probably Democrats because of a, a majority of Americans are Democrats. So if we could get those people to the polls, if we could significantly increase turnout, that would change the makeup of Congress. That would change the makeup of state legislatures, even with the advantages that the Republicans are attempting to build into the system today. And then the second thing people can do is to You know, if they do see Republicans increasingly grabbing power, if they do see that they are now living under a minority government, if they do see that they're increasingly being disenfranchised and their vote, their 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 ability to vote is no longer being guaranteed in a variety of ways, consistent mass protests, they're probably the best way to eventually get governments to respond. There's fantastic work by Erica Chenoweth. She's a professor at the Kennedy School at Harvard, um, where she outlines all the ways in very practical terms, you know, how populations can protest against government policies and get their governments to respond. And, And that's where I would look. Well, you know, we talk often about how the young need to vote, and the young, of course, are in many ways indentured with student loans and have a dim political future. And the saddest thing of all is that young people today will not enjoy the standard of living that their parents had and that they grew up with. And many of the young kids are not only saddled with student debt, but they're also (laughs) taking antidepressants as well. There's so many societal problems, not to mention the the angst over COVID that concerns me. Where do you think the energy, the spark is going to come? Where is the the Tom Paine of the next American revolution? Yeah. You know, I teach at a university um, that has almost 45,000 students, and many of them are first-generation students. It's a campus that's only 20% white, 
It is the face of America. And I can tell you that these students give me hope. Uh, you know, when I get depressed, and I write this in this book, in my book, when I get depressed, I think about my students and they're the ones who, who inspire me. They are keenly aware of these problems. They worry about climate change in a way that our generation um, never worries about it. They, they understand the implications, implications of democratic decline. They, they, they are watching these things happen and they are, they're angry, they are motivated, and and I think really it's it's that they will they will vote with their feet, whether it is to go to the polls or whether it's to go into the street when things become bad enough that they're no longer willing to tolerate it. So I don't see them as complacent at all. So just in closing, then, Barbara Walter, obviously we started out talking about the possibility of civil war being somewhere between the possible and the inevitable. And obviously this year is going to precipitate a lot of political unrest and perhaps violence and then all the way to 2024. So these next few years are are critical to the survival and future of American democracy itself. Is that a possible message? You know, the idea, I've made the point before that you know, if you go to a Super Bowl if match or something and the referee makes an incredibly and flagrantly bad call, the whole 100,000-plus people in the stands would be up in arms. So here you have the Republican Party literally trying to steal all future elections in a most brazen way. Is there any possibility that we can restore the, the notion of our better angels, in this case, our sense of fairness? Absolutely. So the fact that we know the warning signs of civil war um, is really important. If we know the warning signs, we can do something about it. And of course, the two warning signs are, are you know, anocracy, weak democracy, and, and these, this divisive racial politics. And if we just focus on anocracy and think about it like smoking, <laughs> If I start smoking this year, my risk of dying of lung cancer is relatively small, right? But if I continue to smoke for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, my risk goes up substantially. And it's the same with these warning signs. If we don't reform our democracy, if, if we actually even go in the opposite direction, we start smoking even more than we are currently, then our risk factor every year goes up and up and up till eventually it will be 100%. But there's time, there's time. You can quit smoking, you can reform your democracy. And the thing that I wanna leave the public with is full, liberal, healthy democracies don't experience civil war. And that's where the US was for much of its history. We just need to get back to that position. Well, Barbara Walter, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Barbara Walter, who's a professor of political science and raw chair in Pacific International Relations at the University of California, San Diego, where her current research focuses on the behavior of rebel groups in civil wars, including inter-rebel group fighting, alliances, and strategic use of propaganda and extremism. A life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, she served on the CIA advisory panel Political Instability Task Force and helps run the award-winning blog Political Violence at a Glance and is the author of the new book out this week, How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America My quiet voice Sing something to me An angel song about the home of the brave In this land here Yeah.